What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. Uh, yeah, safe to say we've noticed Joker. I think so. That's Joaquin Phoenix in Joker, the much-debated new film about Gotham City's most infamous bad guy. This week on the show, we've got a review plus a preview of the 55th annual Chicago International Film Festival. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Sincere question here, Josh. Have we ever reviewed a film on this show that has already been so thoroughly debated as Joker, at least by members of film Twitter? Well, because of the timing, probably not. I mean, I think of the last time there was so much Twitter nonsense about a movie, maybe The Last Jedi. And we saw that at the preview screening. We were kind of ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. And here we're coming a little bit behind it. We weren't in Venice. No, we we weren't in Venice. Upon its release. We're behind a little bit. We're also going to get listeners' thoughts on Joaquin Phoenix's best film performances, and we'll take a look at what's on tap for the Chicago International Film Festival, which kicks off on the 16th of this month. But first, what could Phoenix do with DC Comics Joker character that Heath Ledger and Jack Nicholson haven't? It is time for us to catch up with Joker. (laughs) This is the last time we'll be meeting. You don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. And finally, in a world where everyone thinks they can do my job, check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. So what do we do with Joker, Adam? Well, I'm going to start us off by doing something radical. I'm going to ask you a question that will help us consider it first and foremost as a movie. I don't plan on offering a review of reviews here or lengthy thoughts on any of the controversies surrounding Joker. I'm happy to riff on some of that if you want to bring such context into the conversation. Honestly, I just haven't been following much of it. I only finished a rough draft of my own review today, so I haven't looked at any other reviews. Mm -hmm. And as we said, because we've been behind the curve on this, I think we've both been trying to stay as much in the dark as possible. That's true. So let's begin by talking about what you and I finally did see on screen. The latest variation on the comic book villain portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix, directed by Todd Phillips from a script that he wrote with Scott Silver. Phoenix is following in the footsteps of some truly great Joker performances. Jack Nicholson in Tim Burton's Batman, that was in 1989, and Heath Ledger in 2008's The Dark Knight. I know Cesar Romero also has his fans. The less said about Jared Leto, probably the better. Ledger is the interesting comparison, I think. Not only because he remains, for me, the best Joker, though Nicholson and, yes, Phoenix are also brilliant, doing very different things, but I think because of the major distinction between Ledger's Joker and Phoenix's. In our Sacred Cow review of The Dark Knight, that was episode 692, if anyone wants to catch up with it, one thing I highlighted was the fact that we never learn anything about that movie's Joker. There's something sickly destabilizing about the fact that Ledger's Joker offers two competing backstories about himself. This new Joker is all backstory, as we follow Phoenix's Arthur Fleck, a social misfit and mentally unstable clown for hire, who devolves, or maybe rises, to the status of the infamous villain as a series of provocations push him over the edge. I wonder, Adam, did you appreciate the way Todd Phillips and Phoenix fill in the holes in Joker's history? Or do you wish that they, like Ledger, had left them tantalizingly blank? Well, before I answer your really thoughtful question, can I share what I still think is your most insightful, critical work ever? Oh, my goodness. Your 
series of emojis you posted after seeing <laughs> Joker in our film spotting Slack. Yeah, if, if you could find a way to describe those. Well, I ran it through the emoji translator oh, that boy. I have handy at all times oh, because boy. I'm, of course, an out-of-touch middle-aged man. And what it tells me is this was the reaction you had or the series of reactions you had after saying, I saw Joker. We got slight smile, grin, blush, upside down face, zany face, face with party horn and party hat, and then finally, man shrugging. Yes. Is that accurate? Well, I can't wait to hear the translation. Like, well, that's, that's how you, it. How do you perceive that? Well, as a rave? As it, sounds a... Like, it sounds like you maybe started out having a different experience than me, but perhaps ended up in the same place because my series of reactions would just be seven men shrugging. Mm. And to go back to your question, at some point during the movie, and I do think this speaks to my overall experience, I was taken out of it enough that I did start thinking about how we should process this movie, what the terms of the discussion should be. And I was thinking specifically of Ledger and the Dark Knight. And if you talk about Ledger and talk about that film, and depending how much time you spend on it, in this review, are you doing this movie a disservice? Should you be able to talk about it without having to really go there? Or is it a disservice if you don't? Because, I mean, let's face it, it's not as if the filmmakers here weren't reckoning with the characters' cinematic history when they were making the movie. And we can talk about whether or not we really get any reckoning with that on screen. But the main reason I was thinking about all this was I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that Ledger's Joker is a supporting character an almost supernatural instigator who, as you note, Josh, is given no actual backstory. And every frame of Phoenix's Joker is designed to give us access to the troubled, fragile psyche of this man. And give us access to is too passive. It bludgeons us until we access this troubled, fragile psyche. Yet Ledger's feels so much more complete and more compelling, and somehow I'd even say more human. And I suppose the counter to that argument is, well, Ledger's is the fully formed supervillain. That's what we're getting in The Dark Knight. And with Phoenix, we're watching the, I suppose, evil primordial ooze just coalescing. But Joker never evolves beyond scene after scene of painful slights and degradations and worse, empty provocations. Now, is that Phoenix's fault? Is that Todd Phillips's fault? I would love to hear what your emoji series really means, Josh. All right. Well, first I'll say that I would agree, as you know, I said in the setup there, Heath Ledger is better. I think it's probably the more interesting way to go to leave that mystery. So I didn't need this backstory. Having seen it, I'm really glad I got it. Hmm. My translation would be that as soon as this started, I was hooked I thought I knew, you know, I did know without reading reviews, the general critical reception was negative. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm I'm having some fun here. Uh, things started to get a little bit crazier. I was still on board. Um, I wasn't so sure about it as we got towards the last section. And then it turned the corner and I ended up loving Joker. Wow. And I could only shrug at it and say, oh, well, <laughs> I've got to commit. This is my experience. Okay. I think this is a really good film. Um, and we switch bodies wait. for <laughs> this movie. <laughs> I, I thought you would go for Even it. Even in terms I of, I think, wait. our reaction to Joaquin Phoenix then. You weren't, and I'm the you ultimate Phoenix his, supporter. His performance. Well, I, we'll get no, to that. We'll get all. to that. But let me um, first start with some of the things that you mentioned. Um, I don't think it's one note at all. I think you definitely see the development of this psyche from someone who is this put upon, overlooked um, misfit, as I said, who somehow finds his way, not entirely of his own machinations, which is one thing I liked about it, leading. It's not even really a cause. He's no. just at the center of chaos. And to watch how Arthur Fleck got from the beginning point to the end was fascinating to me. I think there is definitely there are transition points. I think it gives us way more reasons than I ever would have expected. It was not one note at all. Maybe they, too many. They very much honor like honor maybe not be the right word, but they pay attention to the fact that he does have some level of mental illness that is receiving some level of treatment. Yes. 
and that that treatment is taken away from him. So this isn't just someone who, oh, he's crazy and so he's evil. It's much more nuanced than that. Then there are also other outside elements that come into play. There are these senses of disenfranchisement going on in the city at large, some of which are legitimate, some of which are not. There is this issue of the income inequality at play and Again, that can be understood as a legitimate complaint when it's later dismissed by Wayne. We can get into the Wayne family's involvement Mm -hmm. in this story. I I probably didn't need it to have so many DC connections, but it went lightly enough, and I think it worked with how the story wanted to proceed. But that became interesting to me as well, that it starts to switch our understanding of the Waynes and see how someone could look at when he calls those people protesting income inequality clowns. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And there are other examples of institutions failing people. Yes. Um, The the, um, social worker that he's been meeting, that whole program gets cut. When When he goes to the hospital, this is an institution that fails as well. And I just found this movie to be, I want to talk before we get done about its connections with Fight Club. I don't think it's as good as Fight Club, but I think it's on a parallel track here where I did find this movie to be enough of a mirror about what we're sort of all experiencing right now. And there's a meta element. The discourse around Joker seems to be the same sort of bubbling vitriolic stew that gives birth to Phoenix's Joker. And it echoes what we're experiencing in that way. And I don't think it entirely gives into it. I think there are key ways it undercuts him. So Hmm. it does not become the celebration of this character. Um, But the way it does work, think about Jack Nicholson's Joker to go back to another one, how he kind of, he fell into a, a vat of green chemicals and arose out of it. And we have our Joker. And I like that. Some great comic book imagery there. Mm -hmm. This gives us something that's, much more raucous and reflective and toxic. Um, And Phoenix's Joker arises from this vitriolic stew that I feel we sort of have been living in a little bit in the last couple of years. I don't think there's satire here as there is in Fight Club. I don't think the movie's that ambitious. That's one reason I don't think it's as good. But man, I really thought this movie was onto some things. Hmm. I thought it was jaundiced but also judicious in interesting ways. Wow. I was honestly pretty much out from the opening scene, and that's so hard with a Joaquin Phoenix performance. I'm such an apologist for him. Not that you really need to apologize, because I don't think many people would argue he's one of the greatest actors living, and he certainly isn't any less talented than Heath Ledger. But, man, if he ends up winning an Oscar for this performance, what is so tortured, and I would say to watch torturous. That would really be a shame. And you talk about all these different elements that are being introduced. Yes, there are so many different elements and explanations being introduced moment to moment, scene to scene. I think his performance is shockingly uneven. I felt like we were getting a new character created Hmm. every scene of this film. Honestly, different mannerisms, different verbal sounds. He is not consistent in any way with a character like I've seen pop up in a few different places. They'll talk about how this Arthur Fleck is similar in some ways to Freddie Quell from The Master. I kind of get where people are going with that because (laughs) that's a character who's a little off as well, obviously, or a lot off, but I don't feel like there is at all that kind of finely tuned, honed character as chaotic as even Freddie Quell is. Like we get in The Master, that's not at all what we see here. And I'll point out whether it was him completely or it was the script or Phillips that he is saddled with, I think, a virtually impossible burden, which is having that medical condition where he laughs uncontrollably. And it wasn't initially clear to me. I thought maybe the movie was actually suggesting, and maybe it is, maybe you read it similarly, that it's almost like he laughs when he should be crying or when he's his most upset. That's when actually the laughter really comes and he can't stop it. Or maybe sometimes and. I do think sometimes it seems like it's just totally random. But how as an actor you take that and make it feel like a real condition with real pain behind it and not just annoy the hell out of viewers? I don't know how you do it because I didn't see Joaquin Phoenix do it, at least not for me. And 
I'm putting a lot of it on his shoulders, but of course, I think what we really get here is that Phillips just isn't the craftsman as a filmmaker that someone like Christopher Nolan is. Well, yeah, let's stick with Phoenix and then we can get to Phillips. Um, You know, I I think he never annoyed me at all. Um, I thought the not completely explaining his condition was crucial um, because it's part of his backstory. I mean, part of what Until it does explain it. How does it explain it? With a card? No, not with the card, but when... Well, it doesn't explain so it so far as it's mysterious, but we understand what probably caused from. it. Yes, and it's caused by abuse. This is yes. another factor exactly. in his backstory, which yes. I do think is interesting. This is someone who has suffered abuse as a child, and I guess I didn't mind if it wasn't completely explained, but it was, again, just all part of this mix forming this mindset. And you say that he's playing different characters all the time. Well, the whole story is of... Arthur Fleck finding who he thinks is his character. He's mm-hmm. searching for his identity. Now, the opening scene you mentioned, is this where he's in the mirror yeah. looking at himself? That immediately gave me a sense of someone looking for identity the way he's digging into right. his face as if it's made yes. of silly putty. And the question he's asking himself there is, why can I not express the emotions, the appropriate emotions that everyone else so easily can. And so you're already getting some sympathy before you even know what the condition is. This is a guy whose his mind is on the fritz That's in, in a lot of Phoenix ways. Phoenix is going for. That's what clearly Phillips in the film is going for. I'm just telling you my experience watching it was completely the opposite. It was this movie is going to try so hard every single well, it's a, moment. It's a very like showy condition. Yeah. So and it's this is a comic book character. I mean, I guess maybe I was a little and yet bit And it's trying to strip down. And so it's trying to strip down and make it this gritty, realistic view of this character. So I felt like that was at odds. Well, you mentioned Quell, and that's a much better performance. Yeah. I, will, I will give you that. But I think Phoenix is employing some similar tactics that for me were very effective. And it is the physicality. It's not just what he's doing with his face, but also the way he's moving his limbs, the the long stringy hair when Mm -hmm. he's always running is flailing about him, behind him. And he runs as if he's wearing clown shoes all the time. He's gangly, out of control. This is all part of the physicality of building the character. And so I thought that that was really effective. It was a way, as he did with Freddie Quell, a way to make us, um, you know, understand the internal brokenness of the man because of what we see on the outside. And also note quickly, because I did want to praise this as well, the terrific score by Hildur, oh boy, Gudendotter. Um, <laughs> Another element has, I found tortured. Yeah. Oh, it's so <laughs> effective because the strings are swerving when they should be holding still. It's this audible variation on the uh, the wires that are crossed within Arthur Fleck. So I thought that worked as well. I guess I was just completely on board with what Phoenix was doing and those changes that bothered you as inconsistencies, Mm -hmm. I I saw as development of the character he was trying to find. I will give you this. There was the moment when he appears very near the end of the film on the talk show and he seems to adopt more of the showman, more more of the the leader. It's a moment that worked for me. Okay. Oh, good. Well, go ahead. Actually, well, I was just going to say that that's finally a moment, and we won't really spoil anything here, but Robert De Niro plays this talk show host that the Phoenix character, Joker, is infatuated with. He ends up on the show, and there is a moment where we finally see, I won't say Phoenix, I'll say Arthur Fleck, being so comfortable in his skin, which is now playing, obviously, this created character. It is truly a character. It's no longer him. He asked and when to be identified him, as Joker. That's right. That he point. has a name. He comes out in his costume. And when he sits down and crosses his legs, there is a comfort to him. And not only that, he becomes even more cogent as a character. He becomes someone who then, when he's calling out in a few of those moments, a few, not all of those moments, calling out De Niro's hypocrisy, that's as close to a real thrill as I had hmm. with this movie at any point. Seeing Phoenix comport himself that way and seeing him actually call out some contradictions, that's the closest to really any kind of substance this movie had to offer. But I will, Josh, give you one other scene, though for me it's more of an example of what the movie needed to do more of, not what it does really well. Sharon Washington plays his social worker, who's Mm -hmm. kind of a a therapist for him. And I suppose we can say maybe not a very good one, at least Arthur doesn't think that she is, but she does have to tell him, finally, these services are going to end, the government, the system's no longer going to pay for it. And she has a line where she says to him, they don't give a shit about people like you, Arthur. 
And that really resonates because we get the sense that to the politicians and to the rich people who run Gotham, Arthur is no different than the garbage that's collecting on the streets. They really just wish someone would come along and clean it up Mm -hmm. and just kind of get rid of him with the trash. But that would be fine if that was the only line she said, but it's what she follows it up with that makes it more poignant. She says, and they don't give a shit about people like me either. A social worker, someone who doesn't really have any money, no real power, no political standing, someone trying to help people like Arthur, which, let's face it, it's probably, at least in the context of this movie, a lost cause to the system. She's no different than he is, and I guess I felt like I wanted the movie to have, I suppose, that kind of subtlety and those kind of insights more consistently. Yeah, for me, moments like that made his plight at, which is very personal, also corporate. And I think that's what made the movie more interesting to me. Just to jump quickly back to that talk show sequence that you did like, um, at first I was like, oh, he's too cogent here. Like, this is too much of a leap. These are things he's internalized, but would never spout this way. And then Debbie saw this with me and I was talking with her afterwards and she said, well, in those therapy sessions, he'd kind of been building up to that. And it's true. If you think back, he does give little, not speeches, but he'll make statements about who he believes he is and how he's viewed by others to his therapist. And so I guess I I can see how that talk show scene does build on those and it does become his declaratory moment about his own identity and what he's going to do about it, which we'll leave unspoiled. We'll get a good moment or two like that, a really cogent thought that has some power to it. And then for me, throughout the rest of that sequence, we'll get some scenes. And this is the only time I'm going to bring this up because – Like you noted, we haven't really been following it that much. And really, there's nothing I have less interest in than reading the director's thoughts about a film before I've seen the movie and before we've really come here to wrestle with it. But I know because I'm on Twitter that Todd Phillips made some comments about our woke culture and how you can't be funny anymore. And that set everybody off. I do think, Josh, even if I wasn't aware of that whatsoever, I still would have felt watching in that scene at the end when all of a sudden we hear Arthur start going on about how everyone's just screaming at each other and nobody's civil anymore. That seemed like less Arthur Flex concerns and more like someone else's concerns, a filmmaker's concerns being shoehorned in. Is that in at, on the yeah, talk show it's interview? It's on the, on the couch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And maybe that's one reason that, that felt a little out of character that moment for me as well. Let me give you, before we move from Phoenix to Phillips, because I, I do want to get to the craftsmanship question. Um, one more example, see if I can convince you of the physicality and how it's effective. After his first break of violence, which occurs on the subway train, um, he kind of, which I will point out is very clumsy. It's not like this cool act of violence. No, he's which I appreciate the, about it. The gun, he's slipping all over. Mm-hmm. He flees to a public bathroom and kind of locks himself in. And he begins doing this weird, it almost looks like Tai Chi. And at first, I'm wondering is this something he was taught in therapy, like to get himself to relax? And that's why he's doing it. But then you'll notice he looks in the mirror and sees himself. And it begins to change and it turns more into a dance, a dance he'll adopt and show later in the film. And to me, that was a crucial moment because he's recognizing I've taken this step. I've exercised some power, legitimate or not, we can debate, but I've exercised some power. I'm no longer a victim who needs Tai Chi. I'm an entertainer who can lead. I have the power. And and for me, that was just a wordless moment, but more physicality from Phoenix that helped to build the character. Yeah, a a very elongated moment, a too elongated moment for me. And I agree with your reading overall that it's a sense that there's definitely a certain musicality to his character that's inherent in him. And it's in that moment and in a few others over the course of the film where we see him come into himself truly physically. I think that's where he's starting to realize who he really is or what he's capable of. And it's only in those violent moments where that personality, I suppose really does come out. And again, that comfort level with his own body that he feels the need to express himself. I saw it as a sort of dance of joy, I guess in that regard, but I didn't like that scene overall. And then we get to moments like what people have surely seen in the trailer of him dancing down the 
stairs to Stadium Rock or whatever the tune is. I, I just oh, oh, I, it's it's Gary Glitter. Gary Glitter. I know Rock and Roll Part Two. I just I would have loved <laughs> I would have loved at some point not just for the movie to go out of its way to try to disturb me. I would have loved for it to actually unnerve me to make me really aware of my conflicted feelings to make me aware of the fact that I was kind of rooting on some level for Arthur to succeed and and pitying him versus finding him pitiful, which never really happened. I do think that Phillips here always takes a shortcut to make us feel something. And I mean feel something in all caps, whether it is resorting to music video goofiness or gratuitous violence or shoehorning in the Batman references. I really feel like, Josh, we we did switch places on this review. Everything you usually bemoan, I'm now the one bemoaning, including big performances. This is the rare one to me that is too big. And the one review of this that I did have to take a line from, maybe part of the issue that I'm having with the film and with the character and with Phoenix's performance is ironically for the character, the complete lack of a sense of humor. And A.O. Scott really nailed it. I think he said the hallmark of this Joker is its solemn witlessness. I don't know how you argue with that. Well, I, I, it's either whether I, you see I, it I as a good thing. It, yeah. I didn't find it that it was meaning to be a comedy or wanted to be a comedy. I can get back to well, you a can, few very You can have nuances bits. and shades of both. Yeah, no, this I movie know, has I mean, none of that. No, I, there are a couple of moments I did think were kind of funny and we can get to. One that does try to be funny, that's the absolute worst moment in the film, we should probably acknowledge. Um, but let me back up to the steps, the staircase sequence, and explain Terrible. why it's so brilliant. <laughs> and it is because it is not a shortcut, but absolutely a culmination. We see those steps way earlier in the film. I think mm-hmm. we see them maybe three times overall, yep. for sure twice. Walking the up the first time. we see them, exactly. Yep. Coming home He's from work. coming up the steps. And so the camera is at the top seeing him rise. Mm-hmm. And it should be a moment just the direction that he's coming yeah. should be something that we associate with positivity, right? But the way Phillips frames so much of this movie is to be oppressive towards Arthur Fleck. Yeah. And as he comes up the steps, we have these dank, drab buildings on either side of him. Even behind him, there's a horizon of similar buildings. So even as Arthur is coming to the top and arising, he can't escape this oppressive Gotham. He's still trapped by it, okay? That's just almost a throwaway moment. Then, much later in the film, we get to the one that you're talking about, and it's reversed. This time, we're at the bottom of the stairs, looking up, and he's full Joker at this point. I think he might be on the way to the talk show recording, and what we see him is him doing that dance. He's perfected that dance. He's coming down the steps. The Gary Glitter song, which is just, you know, one of the most ridiculous songs ever recorded, mm-hmm. is playing in his head. Here's one of the many moments the movie puts us right it's in subjective. his subjective. Understood. He's yeah. triumphant. And then there are two brilliant things about this. The movie undercuts him by having the cops come on the top, yeah. yell his name, not Joker, right. his name, yeah. which he doesn't want to be associated with anymore. The music cuts out yeah, and breaks he sees the reverie. them and scurries away um, like a child. But also it's the emphasis that he thinks this is his most triumphant moment, mm-hmm. but he's literally descending. He's going all the way down into Gotham's desolation into the pit, into the very thing that he thinks he's escaping or thinks he might be taking control of at this point. And I think it's one of the many moments where the movie crucially undercuts this character and did make me feel, just when I feel like we're getting a little too sympathetic with this guy, like his Mm. reasons might be valid, that first killing, you could almost argue those guys deserve it. Yes. Um, But It gets more complicated going on, and I think this sequence is just a great combination of giving this freaky, tantalizing character who did disturb me, and just as it's about to coronate him, undercut him with some, I think, some inventive filmmaking. Hmm. Oppressive is a really good word that you used because I think fundamentally where I'm at with this film and Philip's choices is he never lets us forget the oppression. It's almost like when you talk about characters who play comedy really well and the dialogue is just great it's screwball comedy banter and all we need is two good-looking people to not overplay it and wink at us and just say the lines man everything about the arthur fleck character and what he undergoes is oppressive and painful and yet somehow in every scene literally every frame it feels like phillips will not 
let us forget just how oppressive and painful it really is. And I guess that's where I wish that it had a little bit more humor. Maybe it had a little bit more subtlety, but Phillips just wants to go back to a word I used earlier, bludgeon us with it. Now, one element I did really like as we talk about kind of the the realism of it or kind of the grittiness of the film. Think about some of the supporting characters and faces we see in this movie. Now, Zazie Beetz as kind of a love interest is unfortunately completely wasted in this movie. And this gets into a whole subjective inside Arthur's head thing, too. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to Fight Club, yes. which I agree with you is a much smarter film. Especially Though, in how it handles this yes, there's a certain, character. There's a certain reveal here, except it's not any kind of revelation because there's no way right. we bought any of it to right. begin with. So that that part fails. But we don't get really any movie star faces in this movie, right? If you think about who some of these actors are, and I don't mean this to be condescending in any way. I think these actors would even say it. You get like Glenn Fleshler as the co-worker who gives him the gun initially, Bill Camp and Shea Wiggum as the cops, and even the guy who plays Thomas Wayne, who's supposed to be this rich savior, this almost regal character. Brett Cullen plays him and, and really doesn't give him that sense at all. I think you could say the same even of the brief appearance we get of the Alfred here. It's not a sort of Michael Caine, Jeremy Irons. Yeah, I wasn't even like clear if he was supposed to be Alfred. Yeah, I, I guess good point. I assume that it was, but it did seem to me a deliberate attempt to kind of de-glam this world. And I like that. I like seeing those faces on screen. So that brings us to Fight Club because I do think, again, reiterate, Fight Club is the better film for one, what for the reason I gave that it's more subversive, I think, more yeah. satirical. And the way it handles Helena Bonham Carter's character is mm-hmm. much more sophisticated than what is done with Zazie Beats here. But the movie star faces thing gets to a point that is interesting to me because I still feel that Tyler Durden is a much more slippery character than Arthur Fleck. Going back to this idea of is the movie too sympathetic with him? Is the movie holding him up as some sort of hero? I mean, Durden's appeal is obvious and one of those reasons is because he is played by a movie star. Right. It is Brad yeah. Pitt. You're attracted to him. You're, You're drawn attracted to him. to him. He's catnip for women. He's powerful. He doesn't care what anyone else says. No one wants to be Arthur Fleck. You have a guy who's scrawny. I mean, maybe this was another oppressive moment for you, but that wordless scene of him stretching his clown shoes and we see him from behind and his body is almost insect-like. I mean, this is not someone that we're um, set up to really want to emulate. He's unfunny and he's awkward. And so I think that makes an interesting distinction from Fight Club, which I see as the more telling parallel. I, I know, obviously, we have, you know, Taxi Driver at work here. All we over have it. King of Comedy. King of Comedy. I mean, De-, De Niro himself being in the film. Yeah, there's even a chase scene that seems straight out of the French Connection. Oh, the possibly. subway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so there are a lot of influences here, but I do think Fight Club is is the most compelling parallel. And just the way that, I don't know, I, I wonder, you never know what's going to happen with these films. But Fight Club, of course, had similar questions circling around it. Is it glamorizing this antisocial behavior? And some people at the time did recognize it was doing more than that. It's grown in reputation. We just did our 9 from 99 review of it and praised it for being more perceptive than that. And I do think Joker, while not quite the film that Fight Club is, may end up having a similar resonance, at least in being Hmm. something of a time capsule, maybe a toxic time capsule, but something of a time capsule for for an age that's full of a lot of misguided rage. I mean, the way the movie echoes some of the the discourse going on, whether it's legit or not, there are different factions of disenfranchisement yelling at each other in this movie and in the actual world. And I think the way it echoes that is just really interesting. And I will say, you know, you you said at one point how you just got nothing out of it. I, I will say I don't think it has as much on its mind as Fight Club, but I think it does remind me, watching it reminded me that violence will always be insanity. And it's part of that – the tease the movie does in making me uncomfortable with how much – I did begin to sympathize with a character who begins this descent that at the end, while somewhat triumphant, has never been more problematic. And I think that's that's a challenging place to be. And I was surprised Joker put me there. Mm. Yeah, I think our fundamental disagreement here, especially with Fight Club as a reference point, is I think as we found upon its revisit, there are real ideas at the core of Fight Club that no matter when we take a look at that film, I think are going to 
rear their heads and we're going to talk about them and discuss it and our take on that movie is going to evolve. And I think all of the things that you talked about in terms of the circumstances of Arthur's situation, the different elements that I suppose lead to who the Joker becomes, I don't know what those are, but they're not ideas. They're not ideas in the same way. Well, income inequality is not an idea. They're disenfranchisement, the, the, like but they're, they're mental all, illness see, being that's rejected. The that's, that's the thing. There's 17 different ideas like that all thrown into this stew the movie doesn't care about any of them in particular oh i don't not at all it pays a lot of attention to them it returns to them it it, it traces the way that they are each crucial factors in the development of this character and so he becomes symbolic and if you're going to become a symbol of a mood of 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 the societal turbulence that that is in the air right now it's going to involve a lot of factors and i was just impressed that the movie could could squeeze that all into one mythic character we've already mm. known in so many ways and give him an outer life, an outer picture of society that was experiencing it as well. I would love to be on your side of it and have enjoyed this movie and be passionately defending it. Alas, it's not the case. If you have seen Joker and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. A little more Joaquin Phoenix talk when we come back. We'll have results of the film spotting poll, which asked, What is Phoenix's best performance? Then it's Chicago's turn to play host to some of the year's most exciting movies. We'll also preview the Chicago International Film Festival. Stay with us. That's from the trailer for, come on, you can place it, American Beauty, Sam Mendy's Best Picture Oscar winner, is up next in our 9 from 99 series. And probably the one that's up against the strongest test. We've, yeah. done, a, we've done films that we came in already loving, this one mixed to negative on, mm. and so we'll see what happens. We'll yeah. revisit. Though I've pointed out, when I saw it in 99, and it's the only time I've seen the film, at least in its entirety, I thought it was really powerful and important. So I fell for it in oh, 99. I thought, I thought no, I fell for it in mixed 99. Mixed to positive. Okay, but you liked it even more. I also, right. and I'm just pointing this out as a statement of fact, I didn't wrestle with it in any way. I wasn't reviewing any movies then, certainly wasn't talking about them on the radio or on a podcast. So I just had that initial viewing and thought that that bag blowing in the wind was really saying something meaningful, Josh. I do remember liking the bag. Okay. (laughs) We'll see if there's more to like with American Beauty. As I have said in the past, I've caught up with a few scenes here or there over the years. And every time I've thought, oh my God, how did I fall for that? Because (laughs) there are aspects of it that certainly I found troubling, some of it just in the performances. But We'll see how that all plays out when we take the movie in its totality. Previous films in our 9 from 99 series, Sam always points out that I forget one of these movies whenever we're recounting this series on the show, and now I'm forgetting which one I forget. But I've got the list in front of me this time. That'll help. Yeah, not only have we done the aforementioned Fight Club from our Joker discussion, but we've talked about Eyes Wide Shut, Being John Malkovich, The Blair Witch Project, The Matrix, and The Sixth Sense. Now, all six of those movies, we were pretty glowing on. So American Beauty really will offer the stiffest test. I am looking forward to it. There's more on our 9 from 99 series and links to all of those reviews at filmspotting.net slash 9 from 99. Also next week on the show, we will get to the first film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. We did hope to pull it off this week. Wasn't quite ready to jump into the fray with that, Josh, but the 2010 action comedy Let the Bullets Fly from director 
Zhang Wayne. Am I saying that right? Zhang Wayne? Yes. Yeah, John the, the latter one. Okay. Yeah. We're going to go with that because Sam pointed out that he thinks it sounds like John Wayne. Well, so there you go. I'm using that as my guide, and that should be a fun one to start the marathon with. I have seen it already, and yeah, it's a great start. It, this thing is, I mean, action comedy is correct, mm. but somehow doesn't quite capture it. There is more on its mind, I think, than we normally associate with action comedies, sure. though there's a lot of action and a lot of laughs. More on that marathon and our full lineup. If you want to follow along, you've got an extra week to do your homework. Filmspotting.net slash marathons. We'll note for those who may have missed it on previous shows, we're doing this because we're gearing up for the end of the year and the end of the decade. And looking back on the best films of the decade, we've picked four films curated by a longtime listener and film spotting advisory board member, Sean Gilman, who really is an expert on these films, put together a list of over 100 movies that he thought should be considered among the best of the decade. And that's just Chinese cinema, over 100 Chinese films. We have somehow gotten him to help us narrow it down to four. Do what we can. Yeah. And that is maybe all we can do. Again, filmspotting.net slash marathons if you want to play along. Next week on our sister podcast, I look forward to hearing how those four very smart people, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky, feel about the new Joker. They're pairing it with the Dark Knight. That's what the next picture show does. Why not? I mean, they could have paired it, of course, with Fight Club, and I'd listen to that conversation too, but they're pairing it with The Dark Knight, so taking a look at an older film and how it does inform our understanding of the new film. It'll be interesting to see if Fight Club does come up. If I had to guess, if anyone on that panel might be on my side, I'm going to go with Tasha. Yeah, Tasha's although, the only one. Although. <laughs> She's the wild card. I, as I said, I haven't been reading reviews. She, she may have already trashed it, so I may be out of luck. Well, I have a feeling, based on what I've seen on Twitter, that Scott Tobias is on my side. And that I makes knew sense not to then. pick him. Right. That makes sense that Tasha and Scott would be at odds. You can find out where they land by listening to The Next Picture Show every Tuesday at midnight is when new episodes post. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts and find more info at nextpictureshow.net. Massacre Theater is the part of our show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. And basically last week or on our last episode, we were just giving a t-shirt away. We made this one so obvious. In case you missed it, here's a little clip. We've got to get them down to 12 amps. 12 amps? You can't run a vacuum cleaner on 12 amps, John. We have to turn off the radars, the cabin heater, instrument display, the guidance computer, the whole smack. Whoa, guidance computer. What if they need to do another burn? I mean, honestly, maybe the easiest massacre theater of all time. You don't even have yeah. to have seen the film. You just have to be vaguely pop culturally aware, I think, to get this one. We served that one up very easily, especially all the references yes. in the show itself. Right. I mean, if you've never entered massacre theater, now is the time. That's right. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is this coming Monday, the 14th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on next week's show. Have you ever had bad thoughts about Master Peggy? Yes. What did you think? I thought you were fools. Am I a fool to you? No, sir. If you were locked in a room for the rest of your life, who would be in there with you? Doris. Who's Doris? Best girl I ever met girl I'm marry one day. Is she in Lynn? Yes. Lynn, Massachusetts? Yes, sir. Then why aren't you with her? Uh, I'm an idiot. More Joaquin Phoenix talk here. And finally, we're going to get to some love for Joaquin Phoenix from me as we get to our poll question. You just heard him with the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman and Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. A couple weeks back, we were looking ahead to this Joker review, and we asked you to help us name Joaquin Phoenix's best performance. We gave you these options. Theodore from Spike Jones's Her, Doc Sportello from PTA's Inherent Vice, Freddie Quell from The Master, Joe from Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, Johnny Cash, of course, Walk the Line, Oscar-nominated along with his Freddie Quell performance, or you could have gone with maybe a James Gray movie. Phoenix has appeared in four of James Gray's films. Josh, how did it come out? Well, despite those four options... Maybe a James Gray movie did still end up in last place with 5% of the vote. Then came Doc Sportella with 8%. Oh, I'm disappointed. Joe received 9% from You Were Never Really Here. Johnny Cash, 10%, despite that Oscar nomination. In second place was Theodore from Her with 17% of the vote. But this was not even close. Freddie Quell 
did run away with it with 52% of the vote. Kevin McLenathan wrote in, Freddie Quell is the correct answer, of course, but any of these options would be a career-making performance for any other actor. That a single actor has all of them is nothing short of astonishing. Here's Isabel Bishop. It's definitely her for me. It's his most vulnerable and intimate performance, and he's not even being intimate and vulnerable with another actor, just a device and a voice. And that is what sets this performance above the rest. She's right, and I'll give some credit to Scarlett Johansson as well, who is that voice is that device. She doesn't even have a body to use in the film. And I think just with her voice, she gives a really remarkable performance. Andrew Hurt says, what? No love for Commodus? Were you not entertained? Thank you, Andrew. Tom Morris agrees here. Seriously, no gladiator quills or to die for? You do realize he made movies before 2006? This vexes me. I'm terribly vexed. Terribly vexed. More Commodus love from Jeremy Kennis in Severance, Colorado. As intense as JP can be, I was the most unsettled, confused, afraid, and generally creeped out by this character. The tension he creates about whether or not he will, or more accurately, when he will, turn the madness up to 11, kept me on edge with every scene. Would you say he's bigger in Joker or as Commodus, Adam? (laughs) If you had to choose. If I had to choose, he definitely does more with his voice in terms of the bigness of his voice as Commodus, but overall performance, I'm going Joker. Okay. Here's Mitchell Bupre. I think Phoenix and James Gray are the best American actor-director collaboration we have in contemporary film. And it's been a disappointment to me that he hasn't been a part of Gray's last two films, Ad Astra and The Lost City of Z, that is. He's great in all four of their films together, but I think the first is still his best. So I'm giving my other vote to 2000's The Yards. Closing us out, Susan Thompson in Phoenix says, in the past month, I've become a film-spotting junkie and often and my favorite parts of the show are the poll results and listener comments. I agree. They're the smartest part of the show. The passion, the care of observation, and my shared love for film pulls at my heart to be a part of the effort. But alas, they have all been past podcasts, so no voting for me. Until now. Voting other didn't seem appropriate for my first poll, but I just had to give a shout out to Phoenix's performance as Lucius Hunt in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. Say what you will about the film, but the porch scene between Phoenix and Bryce Dallas Howard is a pure study in Phoenix's ability to be present listening and responding truthfully in the moment. I'm sure there's a top five list for best love scene somewhere in the history of film spotting, and this scene would make my top five without question. Ooh, have we done that? Probably ages ago, but I don't know. Something if about like romantic it. moments. Yeah, romantic comes to moments. Mind. Maybe that was it. We may uh, have done more directly sex scenes at some point, I do, but I'm I do think sure we, we did. That. You're right. Romantic has probably been done at some point. Susan, I will say this about the village. It's a good film. I mean, I'm, if, if I'm going out in defense of Joker on this show, I might as well might just, as well. why stop there? Okay. I, I do really like The Village. This week's poll question has us looking ahead to The Lighthouse. We're not totally sure when we're going to review it on the show, but it is coming out in the next few weeks. It's the new one from director Robert Eggers, who gave us The Witch in 2015. This movie is set in a remote and isolated New England lighthouse at the end of the 19th century. It stars Willem Dafoe. He plays a veteran lighthouse keeper who is a reluctant mentor to Robert Pattinson's rookie wiki. I guess that's that's short for whatever vocation they have. That should have been the title. Why didn't they call this thing rookie wiki? Rookie wiki. They could have had a huge hit. Just rolls right off the tongue. The subject of our poll then, inspired by Defoe's character, is complicated movie mentors sticking to movies from this decade. A lot of good options. This one could qualify as a patented Sam Van Hallgren, deeply flawed trademark <laughs> poll question. But you know what? With the help of some listeners on Twitter, I think he managed to make this a pretty good list. I love when the poll questions that get tested out on Twitter and refined. Oh, yeah. Is that what happened here? Because right now he's asking, which complicated 2010s movie mentor would you most like to see in another film? Yeah. He definitely added one that would have otherwise been left off if it wasn't for Okay, listeners. so there's another option. Was it always who would you like to see in another film? Though? Yes. Oh, okay. I missed that. It's just that. the choices that changed. Okay. All right. Well, here they are. Christoph Waltz as Dr. King Schultz in Django Unchained. Ray Fiennes as Monsieur Gustav H. in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Jennifer Lopez as Ramona in Hustlers. Too Greta- soon. Too soon? Well, I haven't even seen it myself yet. Greta Gerwig as Brooke in Mistress America. Mahershala Ali as Juan in Moonlight. Jake Johnson as Peter B. Parker in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. J.K. Simmons as Terrence Fletcher in Whiplash or, of course, other. So speaking of deep flaws, does this mean we can bring some characters back from the dead? 
in order to see them in another movie or there'll be prequels? Yeah, I mean. Because uh, at least one of them. Yeah, it could be. I think a prequel would be fine. Okay. I, are you going where I'm going? Are you asking that because that's where you'd vote? Well, would you vote I for mean, Juan duh. from Moonlight? Well, I was going to say, duh, you're going with Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest Hotel because you have to shill for your boy no, no. at every turn. No, that's Wes not, Anderson. That's, that is not stop, what I do stop at Stop trying to fake I, out I our listeners voted, and me. I have voted against him many times and I'm going to do so here. That is a great, that is like a perfect performance. I agree. So why mess with it by trying it again? But the <laughs> stories you could follow in some of these other characters, I had missed that. Who would you like to see in another film? I think for me, that pushes it towards Juan. Uh, if it's, the other option might be Brooke from Mistress America. I was going to say. I feel like she's got I'm a lot ready of for another other book. stories. I really am. But Juan, you, do you remember when Juan leaves that movie? I don't think the movie oh, I know. suffers, but you feel, you feel the it. loss. I agree. So, okay. Are yeah. we on the same page about this? Oh, I feel so much better now. <laughs> well, Sam did go with more or less traditional mentor slash mentee relationships here. The way he defined it, an older experienced mentor taking a less experienced young person under their wing did not include relationships that were romantic or sexual in nature. He did get several suggestions on Twitter of Rachel Weiss's Lady Sarah from The Favorite for the poll. She definitely does play a mentor role to Olivia Coleman's Queen Anne, but that relationship, fair to say, Josh, a lot more complicated than just mentor-protege? There were some mitigating factors. For sure. Intentionally missing from the poll, so don't write it in. Well, I suppose you can. Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. Sam says he's just not going there. And <laughs> Lancaster Dodd from The Master because Philip Seymour Hoffman is tragically not around to reprise the role. That's true. In so. early voting, not a shock. Listeners trying to make you happy, it seems, Josh. Going with Ray Fiennes. As Gustav H. Not my vote, but it does make me happy. That's just shocking. <laughs> Sam's heart is breaking somewhere. He says it's the right answer. Really? So he's going to take the Josh Larson role Good. here I'm glad. with Wes Anderson. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Frank Minna, Private Eye. Boys. Frank, frankly, frankly, Franco. He's the one who taught me how to use my head, turn it into a strength. He gave me a place in this crappy world until I screwed up. That's the trailer for Motherless Brooklyn Edward Norton in the voiceover. He is the star, the writer, and the director of the movie, which is an adaptation of Jonathan Lethem's 1999 novel about an orphan with Tourette syndrome who takes up with a private eye who's played by Bruce Willis in the film. The movie opens nationwide on November 1st, but before that, it actually kicks off this year's Chicago International Film Festival, which runs October 16th through the 27th. It is the 55th annual Chicago International Film Festival. And Josh, we're going to share some of the titles that have us intrigued that we're hoping to get out to see. And this is one of those age-old dilemmas. We've talked about it a lot over the years. When you go to a festival, there are almost always going to be a lot of small films that you can only see at a festival. And honestly, you may never see again in your life. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be movies like Motherless Brooklyn that are going to open wide and yet the allure of seeing them in advance, the allure of seeing them maybe even in that festival setting, maybe with a filmmaker or a star there, that's going to draw a lot of people in. And there are certainly big titles like Motherless Brooklyn that I'm intrigued by at the fest. Do you have any of those on your list? I mean, I think it's a really strong lineup. And if I were able to attend the fest as if I was coming from out of town and that's all I was doing, I think I'd hit a lot of these. But my picks, the three titles I want to mention, are a little mixture of larger, more well-known things and things like you said that this might be your only shot to see it. So, yeah, I'll throw one out there at the start okay. here, which is – I think it's been on people's radar, a festival film, Portrait of a Lady on mm -hmm. Fire. A um, lot of burblings of enthusiasm from festivals all year long really, including a rave out of Telluride from Boulder Weekly critic Michael J. Casey that got my attention. A Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the latest from Celine Sciamma whose girlfriend from 2015 I really like. I haven't seen her two earlier features, Water Lilies and Tomboy. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is set in 18th century France and is billed as a romance between a reluctant bride and the female artist commissioned to paint her portrait. So it sounds like you know filmmakers who, even though they've had a couple movies, well-regarded movies under their belt, will get a point and just still manage a breakthrough, 
brings them to another level. And that's sort of been the talk around this for Skiama. So I'm really eager to see it. Two chances to do so at the festival on October 17 and October 19. I'm hoping, I've got it on my calendar, if nothing else comes up, I'm hoping to make it on the 17th and see it as part of the fest. All of the details you would need about these films, including those showtimes, is available at chicagofilmfestival.org, but we will list these titles as well in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you want to remember any of the films here we're mentioning. And Josh, I'll jump in because Portrait of Lady on Fire is in one of my categories here. I broke down my most anticipated into some different categories, and I have two films under the heading of filmmakers I really should know. Mm. So kind of blind spots for me, and Celine Sciamma is definitely one of them. So I am eager to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the other one. This one may be a little bit more embarrassing based on the body of work and more longevity. The French filmmaker, Francois Ozone, by the grace of God, is his film that is a dramatization of actual events about a man who is dealing with sexual abuse that he suffered as a child at the hands of a priest, a veteran French filmmaker, one who we've never talked about here on the show. So those are two movies and two directors I hope to become more acquainted with. Yeah, Ozan, I've only, I have seen two of his and have really liked both Swimming Pool and Potiche, not sure if I'm pronouncing that last one correctly. Very different, though. One is a, is a comedy and the other sort of a Hitchcockian thriller. So, yeah, definitely a filmmaker to catch up with at the fest if you can. My other pick, this one, you know, it's our duty, I think, and our pleasure to highlight the work of the late French master Agnes Varda whenever we can. And there will be Varda by Agnes at the festival, her final film made just before her death earlier this year. It's another self-portrait documentary, I understand, centered mostly on her work and her thoughts about her work toward the end of her life. And I think, you know, as her personal documentaries have already shown, the ones we've talked about, Adam, The Beaches of Agnes, Faces Places, she was incredibly thoughtful about aging and mortality. And so I can only... Maybe nobody more thoughtful Yeah, just incredible, incredible openness and vulnerability she showed Mm -hmm. when those topics would come up. So I imagine there would have to be some of that in this film as well. When I asked on Twitter what Chicago International Film Festival's people were most anticipating, Timothy Sedlicek sent a whole list, but Varda by Agnes was at the top. Why? He said, Varda is my absolute favorite filmmaker and Faces Places was such a highlight when it came to SIF. So Varda by Agnes screens two times October 17 and 27. Yeah, if I can only get to one film at the festival, it might be Varda by Agnes. And that's another category for me, Josh, film spotting favorites. Varda, a marathon subject here for us. That's when we really discovered her work and a lot of listeners did with us. So can't wait to see it. But also a bigger film, many more stars in the movie, certainly. But Ryan Johnson, a favorite here on the show, his Knives Out has played at least one other festival and has been getting rave reviews. So I have very high expectations for that murder mystery in the vein of Agatha Christie. And this other title came up during our fall movie preview. One of my questions was about Trey Edward Schultz and his film Waves, which is playing the festival. This is a coming of age movie and ostensibly a love story. And if you consider Schultz's other films, including The Great Cretia, a Golden Brick candidate here on Film Spotting, a Golden Brick finalist, and also It Comes at Night. The word I used during our preview was dread. There's a lot of dread in his films. There's a lot of terror, even in a movie like Cretia, which isn't at all a horror film. And I can't wait to see what he does with what seems to be completely different material. Now, I will note again that Knives Out and Waves are both movies you're going to get a chance to see Knives Out probably anywhere around the country. Waves, certainly if you're in a big city like Chicago, and it's going to hit select theaters. But Varda by Agnes, who knows what that release plan is. It's one to definitely seek out at the festival. Yeah, and here's another one that this might likely be your only chance. There is no release date set. It has played a couple other fests and has now made it to Chicago. It's The Vast of Night. I had not heard of it at all before, but it was recommended to me by Scott Phillips on my Larson on Film Facebook page. He said, Vast of Night is fantastic. Saw it at the Overlook Festival. Can't believe it's a directorial debut. Such confident filmmaking. Definite golden brick contender. Here's the plot synopsis from the festival's website. One night in a sleepy 1950s New Mexico town, a high school switchboard operator hears a mysterious sound bleeding through the phone lines. 
Running around town, she teams up with a Cracker Jack radio host to identify the source of the sonic disturbances. With dynamic, fluid camera work, a keen use of sound and darkness, and a Spielbergian touch, filmmaker to watch Andrew Patterson follows their thrilling, unearthly investigation as it leads to realms unknown. So I am in based on that description and Scott's recommendation. As he mentioned, Patterson is making his directing debut here. Uh, It was written by James Montague and Craig W. Sanger. Shows October 24 and 26. So might have to check that one out and see if it does indeed deserve to be on our 2019 Golden Brick list. Well, it's almost like we planned this out and that didn't happen at all in this case because my next category is emerging filmmakers. And I've got a debut here called Les Miserables from France. And I'm probably going to butcher the name. It's L-A-D-J-L-I, Lodge, Lodge, or Lee. And it's a debut and it's billed as a police procedural. No, it's not another musical adaptation of the Victor Hugo epic novel. But what it does owe to the more common Les Miserables is that it's set in the same Parisian district where that saga was set and it is a drama but the filmmaker follows three plainclothes cops here according to the description as they navigate and inflame the neighborhood's simmering ethnic and racial tensions and it does play with a verite approach even though it is not a documentary we have another emerging filmmaker in the form of a familiar name as an actor gail garcia bernal from mexico making his second feature it's a crime drama called chico rotes or at least that's what I'm going with. Josh, the description says, hoping to scrape together enough cash to join a union that holds the promise of steady work. The amateur criminals graduate from petty theft to hostage-taking, but their escapades land the teens in desperate circumstances, both darkly humorous and fraught with danger. I didn't see Bernal's other feature, his debut, but I'm definitely intrigued by the subject matter here. Finally, Josh, I love docs. I love festivals primarily because I get to see a lot of documentaries that otherwise I wouldn't get a chance to see. So here are a few titles that are all playing the festival. And guess what? My favorite type of documentary are documentaries about artists, not so much into biopics as we bemoan here on the show quite a bit, but docs about artists and the artistic process. I'm always fascinated by whether they're great or masterpieces. They always hold my attention. And there's a few of them to single out. One is called Foreman versus Foreman. It comes from both the Czech Republic and France. And it's about Milos Foreman, the filmmaker who passed away a few years ago, made One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus. Also, Frank Geary, Building Justice, talks about the legendary architect as he set out in 2017 to answer the question whether or not there's a better way to design a prison. My Father and Me is the new one from Nick Broomfield, who made Curtin Courtney, and this one's a personal story. It's one about his relationship with his father, who was an accomplished photographer of industrial post-World War II England. So it's kind of a tribute to his father. It's part memoir. So there, Josh, we're talking about two of my favorite subjects, artists and complicated father-son relationships. Finally, one more. I'll give you the new Bauhaus. This is a documentary about a Hungarian artist who moved to Chicago in 1937 and spearheaded a movement that descended from the famous German school. I don't know anything about the movement or the artist, which is why it's one that has me particularly curious. I'll give you one more that's an off-the-beaten-path movie, not a documentary, Josh, at the fest. The Whistlers, which comes to us from Romania. It's a crime thriller, if you will, though these Romanian films don't have your traditional thrills, let's say. They're usually pretty slow burns. But the director, Corneliu Porumbo, who is one of these heralded filmmakers of the new Romanian cinema, along with Christian Munju, who made Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, and Beyond the Hills. And this is described as a wildly offbeat heist movie. I'm a fan of the Romanian cinema. I'm a fan of his work, the films that I have seen, including at a festival about a decade ago, Police Adjective. So The Whistlers is another one that's on my radar. So that's just a handful of titles to look for from among the, I think they are having about 150 film screening as part of the festival. As Adam said, we'll list those with the show notes on this episode's page at the website. And if you want to go to the Film Festival website and get all the details on everything playing, you can do that at chicagofilmfestival.com. I think that brings us to the end of this show. It is the end. We've done Joker. It's over we with. Have. Do you feel better? <laughs> I, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, 
we did the best we could. I certainly did the best I could for now. I look forward to getting the responses from our listeners, and maybe we can wrestle with it some more, Josh. Should be interesting. All right, if you want more, head to the show archives. You can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005 at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking what complicated 2010s movie mentor would you like to see in another film? To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We are on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Out in limited release, including right here in Chicago, a movie we both are eager to see, the new one from Pedro Almodovar, Pain and Glory. Less interested in seeing, probably, The Adams Family opening wide, despite the fact that isn't Oscar Isaac in it? Well, he's a voice. He's a voice. Right? So. Well, that's enough, usually for me. <laughs> I don't think it is going to get me to the yeah, end I was going to say, family. let me know how that goes. So, Gemini Man. Yeah. The new one starring Will Smith and Will Smith, directed by Ang Lee, of all people. I did see this. I caught our friend Matt Singer, formerly of Film Spotting SVU, giving it three and a half stars on Letterboxd. A couple other people I follow giving it positive reviews as well. Despite having a lot of appreciation for Ang Lee, Never would have expected that based on the trailer. No, not a strong trailer. It would be great to see Ang Lee becoming, I don't want to say important or relevant, but part of the conversation more again. So I hope Matt's taste is correct. I do too. Jexy is also out. This is the description. A comedy about what can happen when you love your phone more than anything else in your life. And right now I feel personally attacked. Adam Devine from Pitch Perfect stars in that, along with Alexandra Shipp and Rose Byrne, basically as... Scarlett Johansson in her. Next week on the show, it's American Beauty time. Next up in our 9 from 99 series and the first film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon, we're going to talk about 2010's Let the Bullets Fly. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Is it still Andy Mitchell? For yeah, now. Through the end of the year, right? I don't know about that. <laughs> might be next week. It might be two weeks. All I know is right now he's still our PA. At this particular moment, it's Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by Dead, that's spelled D-E-H-D, comes from the album Water. More information is at dehdforever.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.